I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. A painfully historic defeat. Liverpool 7, Manchester United no, I still don't quite believe it. In all honesty, I'm surprised you've braved this. There are bad days at the office and then there is your joint heaviest ever defeat matching defeats in 1931. What a uniquely terrible match and moment in this otherwise at times brilliant season. And nevertheless, a very warm welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Let's get it all off our chest, shall we? And then move on as United look at setting ourselves up for Europa League progression, having already won the League Cup, of course, and reached the FA Cup quarterfinals where we've drawn Fulham. We know it was bad, that much is clear, but I think today we're going to be considering exactly what happened because, uh, don't get it wrong, this wasn't like the 4-0 at Brentford or even the 6-3 at City, and it certainly wasn't like last season's harrowing defeats to Liverpool home and away, even if the scoreline was incredibly even worse. Uh, and so it does feel different. So we'll be thinking, what is different about it? And why do we get the sense that this wasn't just bad, but utterly bizarre? So that's what we're trying to answer. And then we'll give you your regular extensive updates on the academy. Um, players out on loan and Manchester United women who had a highly contrasting weekend with a thumping win to extend their lead at the top of the Women's Super League. And then we'll preview Thursday night's match against Real Betis of Seville and La Liga. Jack, that was really bad. <laughs> that much is clear. Uh, we're going to use the guiding hand of our lovely patrons to help us through this difficult episode. And Anthony Gert starts us off nicely with... Uh, his question, which would normally be part of the patron bonus Q&A, which we'll still have in this show, but we're using Anthony's question to start off with. And it's nice and simple. And all his question is, is how? In a very short answer, do you put this defeat down to tactical, physical or mental reasons or something else entirely? I think United lost this game. And I say only lost it for now. And that distinction will become important. Okay. I think we lost this game because the way we set up tactically... And when we executed those tactics were quite poor. And I think you could yeah, see that I, yeah. in the first 50 minutes of the game. I think we were second best even then. And that is what led to probably us being two, probably up to three nil down. If you want to kind of split the game up like that. I then think a loss turned into a hammering because mentally we quit. And, and I, I mean that both really disparagingly badly against the players and a little bit understandably because... Anfield is an incredibly hard place to go and play football, especially when you're already on sort of on the on the downswing in a game when you when you fall behind. But the last 20 minutes of that game were truly horrific. I think 4-0 you can probably survive and you write it off as a, a traumatic Anfield experience. The fact that we then let the game go to seven, I think that is completely down to our heads just completely going. Yeah, I think the turning point, I, I, I know what you mean about the second goal, but I think the proper turning point to take it into that mental bit was the third goal because immediately after the second, this team was so focused and they have all that belief from the last few weeks of being able to come from behind, so focused on getting back into it. 
and then the third goes in and this because of what's happened in the last few months and and the belief so high they still go to look for a comeback at 3-0 down and that's it just went completely and for me on the mental side of things it felt like all that pressure of the last few weeks I talk about the brilliant stuff but also the pressure where United have done it at Wembley come from behind twice against Barcelona over two legs come from behind against West Ham even in the cup the other night which was ultimately comfortable in the end but come from behind holding on against Crystal Palace after that Casemiro red card under a lot of pressure coming from behind against Leeds to draw all that pressure United have done brilliantly against and coped brilliantly with and then when it began to crumble and I think with the third goal very specifically it didn't just begin to crumble it it fell down like a house of cards completely it, it, this to me felt like mental fatigue. And I think if we go back to uh, where we spoke at the very start of the season about what we expected from Tanag, and we spoke about how we we thought we'd be able to see signs of his identity coming through, but that because of that and because of the way we play out from the back and how we press, we'd have some chastening defeats or heavy defeats or whatever. And we haven't, we saw that in the first two games and the City game, but they've probably been a little less common, would you agree, than than we initially thought at the start of the season. Is that right? Yeah, I think we were expecting them to come more often than they obviously haven't, which is a credit to the way that we have improved defensively, especially with Varane and, and Martinez yeah. and Casemiro in there. But at, at the same time, I do think that you know, we might not have had yeah. these. And then this no, felt, go on, go on. this felt like, sorry to carry on a point from before. This felt like we, we thought, first of all, we thought we'd have more of these heavy defeats on the Ten Hag as he put his identity in. And then I think we thought the physical impact, impact of these games would kind of show itself over a couple of bad defeats to uh, so-called smaller teams. But instead, it wasn't the physical impact, it was the mental impact of all these games in quick successions, 21 games in 75 days, that made just a full-on collapse. And that's not forgivable, but it is explainable, I think. I, it, it was a bit of a perfect storm, to be quite honest, at Anfield. Probably with the exception of Liverpool not scoring an early goal, which was probably the only way that mentally this, this could have been tougher. You know, if you, if you listen to any former Manchester United player speak about the toughest place to play. Every single one of them without fail says Anfield. Says that Anfield, especially if you go behind, it is a horrible place to play football. And I, and I yeah. don't think many grounds, even at some of our other biggest rivals like Ellen Road or the Etihad or the Emirates or Stamford Bridge, I don't think any of them have that. And so then when you couple that with conceding just before halftime, <laughs> yeah. then just after halftime, then a few minutes after you concede that second goal when you're trying to chase the game you concede again that is a body blow and that is a a, a set of circumstances that I, I think definitely created one of the hardest mental situations a player is ever going to face now that is not to say for for one second that the response that we had to that is acceptable yeah. it wasn't it was a disgrace the way that we responded to that because <laughs> you you go 3-0 down fine a, you try and get back in the game, but B, you you maintain some professional pride. I mean, maintain some pride in your work, maintain some pride in the badge that you're representing on your chest. Don't pack it in, in the way that we did. I mean, that the last, at 4-0, I was obviously frustrated, but I was almost like, you know what, it's Anfield, write it off as a bad defeat, escape at 4-0, 
and we'll move on. It was actually that last 20 minutes to, that to me was so, so, so bad in the way that we went about that. And we turned that from a, a really bad loss into a fucking embarrassing loss. And that to me is the part then I'm so frustrated at. I, I think on the, yeah. the, the, the general trend you're talking about and these heavy defeats, I think the one criticism that you can level at Ten Hag for the last, this last eight months or so is that in a way, away from home in big games against the three best teams that we've played away from home, in Arsenal, Man City and Liverpool, we've now shipped six goals to Man City, three goals to Arsenal and seven goals to Liverpool. And that has to be a concern. It has to be a concern in that, yeah, we've managed to, to, to win these games at home or at least do well in them, you know, beating all three of those teams at home. But the manner in which we've been defeated away, that is a concern and something that I think is probably the only repeatable mistake that we've seen under Ten Hag. I agree, yeah. Performances in the big away games have been really poor. Well, Arsenal less so. Wasn't uh, yeah, we, I mean, yeah, we were in that game for long stretches. I don't think it was a good performance. There were lo- lots of bits that were bad, but it wasn't really poor. But yeah, City and, and Anfield, absolutely. And he'll have to take some serious lessons from him. Well, let's come on to how he set United up. Because I, I think I agree, it's kind of semantics in terms of 4 0, 7 0. All it's not semantics, it's, it's entirely hypothetical, but I think you're right. You come away from that game 4 0, and I agree with what you said. You move on, it's a bad day at the office. The problem is, there's a strange balance here, isn't it? Because I was listening to Gary Neville on Sky, and he was saying some rubbish things and some good things, but I think overall he was right. Not it, it was obvious that him and him and even Roy Keane were not getting too annoyed, and that. And, and you also look at the reaction in the media from the United press pack and the coverage is so kind. This isn't a criticism uh, and it's also going to be kind for me. The coverage is so kind because of the credit built up over the last few weeks. But I also think it's something to do with how the game was played. And at the end, I don't know if you would have seen, but viewers in the UK who weren't at the game would have seen, or if they hadn't turned off by that point, an argument between... Gary Neville and Graham Soonis and Jamie Carragher about was this a 7-0 game and it's that weird thing where Liverpool had even more chances to score and didn't but they only had eight shots on target and they scored seven goals (laughs) and if you want to look at the XG it's depending on which person's statistical model you use it's around just under three or just over three it was I think it has to be said it was completely bizarre and was it was the Salah that amazing Salah finish on the turn? We didn't even look at the goal and hit the underside of the crossbar. Was that the fourth goal? Yeah, that was the fourth goal. Right at that point, it was it was obvious what was going to happen, and it wasn't. It it's just you speak about this with fine margins, and I think part of getting old as a football fan is realizing or older yeah. is the fine margins. It's just ridiculous how how an elite sport is decided on these tiny little things. But it's also ri- ridiculous how big a factor momentum and confidence is on on this, not just on on so many scales over the course of a season, but also over of kind of a two minute, three minute scale within a ninety minute game. It's incredible. And at that moment, the fourth goal, where because the second and third have been the first, second, and third all had really bad defensive mistakes. The fourth did have a mistake. I think that's the one where Anthony gives it away. And Liverpool yeah, counterattack. Uh, he gives box. it away on the edge of the box, stupidly. And Tenaga in a big go. But the the way that ball fell to Salah 
and the fact it came off the underside of the bar and the finish was so good, that's when I thought, right, we're this isn't going to end 4-0. This is going to end 6 or 7 because it just felt like everything was falling to them and nothing was falling United's way. And it, and it, it had that sense for about 10 minutes before as well when United went up the other end and Alisson had the, I think that was in the second half, Alisson had a nervous moment and uh, instead Rashford's, tried to go, no, Bruno tried to go through, but instead of the ball falling to a United player, it fell to a Liverpool player. There were a couple of other chances like that. And he just thought, that's why I think it's such a bizarre game, not just a terrible one. I don't think we'll ever see a Premier League team score seven goals from eight shots on target ever again. And I'm certain it hasn't happened before. It's such an odd thing because it's uncomfortable after a 7-0 win to say we had some bad luck. And I get that. And that's, that's what, I, sorry, I don't know if you've seen, but that's what Sooners and Carragher were getting. Was so low. They couldn't see Neville's actual point, which was not that United were unlucky. It's that Liverpool were great, but the combination of United giving up and those kind of fortunate deflections, not deflections to go in, but where the ball was landing. It, that's what his point was. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I, I think the performances of the two teams was probably more like a three or four nil which is still really bad. I don't mean to say that United were great. I, I do get why Sooness and Carragher reacted like, like that. I do, because, because it is uncomfortable bit of thing to Jack say, <laughs> we've just been smashed by seven goals, but we were unlucky. And, and so I, I, do, I, I do understand that. But if you look at the goals, right? The, the fourth goal in particular, McTominay actually does really, really well tracking back after Anthony loses the ball on the edge of the box. He tracks back brilliantly, makes a really good sliding interception. That ball then ricochets twice and ends up at the feet of Salah, who puts it in off the underside of the bar, like you said, without looking at the goal. The chance of that happening are, are extremely low, right? Then you look at the other one where Shaw, I don't even know what goal this is, but when Shaw like ambles up to the ball, which was, by the way, so bad, but then he tries to clear it, takes two deflections, ends up right at Salah's feet and he puts it in the net. You know, then you have, what, what goal was... Darwin's goal the, the one from the cross after a corner was that the fifth or the sixth I think it was the fifth right then you've got what was it was it the the fifth goal or the no the sixth goal I think when Shaw tries to clear it and then it oh, pathetic, deflects a couple of times it? and breaks to Salah yeah yeah like again that takes a couple of deflections and ends up at the feet of Liverpool's best finisher you know but at, at the same time you create, we often talk about in football, you create your own luck. You also create your own bad luck. And like United have to come out of this game and realising, yes, we did get some bad luck, but to be honest, we didn't deserve any good luck because the way that we approached the, the last 20 minutes was so bad. Yeah. And it was, a, that's the thing. It's a mixture of the luck, but crucially underlying that is uh, silliness or laziness or a mixture of the two. Yeah, hundred percent. And And again, that's where, we didn't create any of our own luck. To be honest, we didn't deserve any, any of our own luck. We created our own bad luck because of how awfully we approached the end of that game. I mean, every single player had given up by that point. We just absolutely were not in the game one bit. And I think, you know, yeah, you can look at some luck. If you, if you play that game 50 times over, I don't think Liverpool will ever win 7-0 again. But that doesn't excuse everything that we saw from United, especially from some players that, you know, we take as leaders that should have been the one pulling this team out of what was very clearly a tailspin and making yeah. sure that we shut that game down and didn't end up getting beat 7-0. To be honest, once it got to 4-0, I turned the game off because I, I just didn't, I, I, I expected United to kind of shut the game down, just take this thing out of it, 
take a beating and move on. And I didn't think that we would be, I would be able to learn anything useful about either team at the end from the last 20 minutes of that game. Yeah. Yeah. I think what ended up. The, the really bad lesson we did learn, and this was what was so disappointing is I remember criticizing Harry Maguire heavily and I'm not going to take any way of that criticism away. Anfield last April, I sat, I was working and sat in the press box and for the last kind of 20, 30 minutes when it, just kept getting worse. I watched United's captain and he was just, there was just nothing there. To then see these players who we've put, built so much trust in, the relationship's great and that will come back. I'm sure of that. I've got every faith in that. And the best way to start that would be by beating Real Betis, even if it's just 1-0 on Thursday. But the lack of leadership there and and these players like Casemiro and Verano Martinez and Shaw's become a more senior player and De Gea but especially Casemiro Martinez ran there just wasn't what it needed is is for a bit of time wasting to take the kind of raucous gladiatorial atmosphere away from Anfield and there were moments like that even at 4-0 up there were a couple of moments where it got a bit quiet and when United attacked Liverpool fans there was still kind of audible nerves in the ground and I thought that was interesting what it needed is a bit of that but also someone to say at four or even five nil, because there was plenty of time. There wasn't much time between goal two and three, but between the rest, there was a fair bit of time. And to say, right, we just need to sharp shot here. We just need two banks of four, maybe four, five, one or whatever. And the fact that none of those players, but also Ten Hag, who said afterwards that in he in the final 15 minutes, he just stood on the touchline and stared at his team. And afterwards, he was asked about it and said, I was analysing their body language and their communication to see what could be learned. Now, that's fine. And I love Eric Ten Hag. So I, I'm loath to criticise him, but that's not that fine. Because for those final 15 minutes, how many goals do, do we concede in the final 15? Is it two or three? I can't quite remember. Uh, it was three. It was right. four nil so, at like 65 minutes. So there's, there's three goals in the final 15 minutes. So that isn't fine. Someone had to step in there and stop United playing in the way that they did. And no one did because even at 6-0, we were just kind of charging up the pitch. And there was that combination of on the ball, we were just giving it away and charging up, trying to go and score a goal rather than being sensible about things. But also that laziness where Stefan Bacetic gets past Bruno and he just kind of stands there. And that was disgraceful. And so that's what, that's a really negative lesson for the future and I think yeah I just yeah look at, at at three or four nil I think there has to be a recognition from United that you always want to go forward you always want to try and get yourself back into the game we were three or four nil down like it wasn't going to happen at that point mm-hmm. and at a place like Anfield we have enough experienced players on that pitch to know things can get out of hand so th- this isn't a, a sort of comfortable thing to do but you have to sort of shut the game down at that point. You have to just accept, you know what? The game is out of reach. We've played badly. We need to make sure we don't get embarrassed here. And I think that it was so naive from United, the way that we kept playing at the end of that game. And, and again, I, I keep going back to this. At, at three or four nil, if we'd have walked out of that ground with a four nil defeat, of course I would have been upset and disappointed, but I'd, I'd sort of dealt with it in the game. Like I, I knew that in my heart of hearts, all of those goals had some element of really good play from Liverpool, some element of really bad play from United and and some amount of luck. And fine, you can deal with that. You write it off as a bad day at the office at Anfield where things can go wrong. But the way that we then absolutely just 
we kept just doing ridiculous things throughout, throughout that last 20 or 30 minutes. And that is when the players completely gave up. And that's something I think that is so jarring to see as a football fan, because at this level, we have enough leaders on that pitch to not capitulate in the way that we did. The one that really stood out, what what was the, the Darwin Nunez uh, headed goal? Was that the fifth goal? I think it was the fifth, right? Sixth. Yeah. Oh, okay. So the ball comes in from a corner for Liverpool. It goes out to Henderson at the back post. That was Rashford, yeah. Henderson's standing yeah. there for about three seconds before anyone goes, goes to him. Rashford's looking around. He, he eventually then decides, oh, okay, I guess it's me that will have to go up there. But he doesn't sprint yeah. out to Henderson. He, he sort of ambles over it. It's a joke of a child. And, and he, he's a player that you don't even really consider as one of the leaders of this United team, as someone that you expect that from. But come on. Yeah, like, and the Salah. A, a little bit of effort. You know, the, the players fully gave up at the end and that was so disappointing to yeah. watch. Sorry, that was the fifth goal. You were right. I have it read wrong on my on my page. Salah's sixth as well. Yeah. You had that. The, there's a terrible short attempt at a clearance, but then Salah's free in the area and McTominay's just standing behind him. And it's like, mate, and then Dallow trying to make a goal line clearance behind the line for the for the seventh. It's like, oh my Lord. Um, yeah, it is incredible. But Yeah, and I, I think Ten Hag has got off lightly here. Yeah. 4-0, you come out. I tell you what's what's funny is 4-0 you come out and everyone's everyone will be criticizing Ten Hag's tactics. 7-0 and everyone's criticizing the players. So Ten Hag, I do think Ten Hag's got off a, a bit lightly because of how much we've all come to love him in the last few months. I don't think the way that game was managed, I'd blame a lot the players for a lot of it, but I don't think the way that game was managed was good enough. And I didn't think that yes yesterday I was very sympathetic towards him. But today thinking about it a lot less so. And I understood why he took Martinez off because he was on a booking, but to throw Malassa and Sabitzer in there at 5-0 down is very harsh. And same with Alanga at 6-0. And to the fact that it, I am, dis, I, I, maybe I'm soft, but I give a little more leeway to the players who were at United last season. Maybe stupidly, but because in terms of the mental aspect of it, I can understand that if they were three suddenly 3-0 down 50 minutes in at Anfield, it makes more sense that they would just completely crumble because they've been here before. It's like PTSD. So Shaw and uh, even like Rashford and, and De Gea and whatever. But for the new ones like Martinez, Casemiro and uh, Varane, Varane was injured for that game, I'm pretty sure, because it was Joan, Phil Jones played at Anfield last April. Um <laughs> uh, yeah you gotta laugh at something um, and they did better than Martinez and Varane 4-0 rather yeah, than 7 yeah incredibly yeah but for those new players I, I am disappointed in them well yeah because we've, we've now got these players like Casemiro and Varane and Martinez that we've talked about so much in the last weeks and months saying they're brilliant leaders I even said before the cup final didn't I before the league cup final I said I can't see us having a performance where we properly, properly don't show up for the <laughs> yeah, whole game. Did, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, how stupid does that look? Now, I, it was hard to imagine these players that do seem to have such a good, such, such the right approach to the game from the mental standpoint, completely collapse in the way that they did towards the end of this game. It was completely baffling to watch. And like, again, that is what's the most disappointing part about, about this game is that even in the worst time, we still didn't have the right attitude. Having said that though, I don't want to pretend that it was all about that last 20 minutes. Like that took it from a really bad loss to a hammering, but the tactics yeah, hold on. initially let's, lost us that game in the first half as yeah, well. Agreed. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the tactics in a second, but first of all, first guess to play a clue before we get too deep inside this 
miserable, miserable episode. Listen closely. There's uh, quite a few names that are going to be thrown out in this one. <laughs> so, so I have a strange history of playing for a lot of former Man United players. So I was both a teammate of Roy Keane and played under him as both manager and assistant manager at okay. different clubs. I was then briefly played under Brian Robson during a loan spell. And I was also managed by Steve Bruce. So I can repeat that again. So I was a teammate of Roy Keane's and also played under him as both manager and assistant manager at two different clubs. I was then briefly during a loan spell playing under Brian Robson. And I also played under Steve Bruce during my career. Okay. My initial thoughts, he played for Middlesbrough under Robson and Roy Keane was assistant at Aston Villa. And so, and Steve Bruce also managed Aston Villa. So they're the clubs in my head where Keane was manager, Sunderland or Ipswich or for Ireland. I, I have no names. I'll tell you now, it wasn't Ireland. It was a club team. Okay. Okay. All right. So then I've got, I know the player played for one of Middlesbrough Villa, Sunderland and Ipswich, possibly all of them and possibly someone else, which is hardly narrowed it down <laughs> a lot uh, to, go to a on great there. extent. So I'm going to have to think that one over for a while. Um, right. The tactics, what did, what was the main thing you thought Tenard got wrong? Because really though, these are the, the lessons we know for the future are going to be more, or at least the lessons Tenard is going to take away for at least the rest of this season is going to be tactical. And just before you go, I think the lessons he'll take for the longer term, I do think there'll be decisions taken in the next year to 18 months to two years where we might look back at this game and think, oh, that's where he began thinking about that. Possibly related to players like Bruno Fernandes, Luke Shaw, David De Gea and several others. But go on, tactically wise, what did you think was wrong? So in, in the first half and the, and the very start of the second, John McKenzie, who we've had on the podcast a couple of times recently, has done a, a really good video about this for, for TIFO Football on the same point I'm about to make. To go over there, watch that video. It, it's really good. I, I felt that the issue that we had was the same issue that we had in the first half against Barcelona. Same issue that I've talked about before in the way that in the way that we press and I'll go into more specifics in a second in that I think we are really aggressive on our press at times but we don't actually execute it properly so what United tend to do is when we want to press a team high up the pitch our front three goes really really narrow we, we sort of have this plan to try and funnel the play into a small area of the pitch we try and funnel funnel teams into one side generally using the touchline as like an extra defender and we try and make sure that the game is played in a really compact area. So the idea being, instead of giving a team this, you know, 100 yards by 50 yards whole pitch to play in, you force them to play in like a 10 by 20 yard box where every player inside that box is marked really tightly. There's no space to play in. The idea being, obviously, you make it hard for them to play out. You try and generate turnovers high up the pitch. Not a new concept. What United do is we're, we're really, really big on trying to funnel play in one direction. So what will happen is if the, if the ball goes out to, let's say, the right centre-back, the forward, the striker, who in this case is Rashford, will put that player on the ball under pressure, that right centre-back. The left winger, who in this case is Bruno Fernandes, will push onto the right back, and in this case is Alexander-Arnold, obviously. And then the winger on the opposite side of the pitch, who in this case was Anthony, will then come inside and stop the pass coming into the, the left centre-back. And then obviously the midfielders stay with their men, push forward. And so you try and make sure there is no easy ball in or out of that small kind of compact box. 
What United keep doing though, and this is a repeated problem now, is we leave the fullback on the other side of the pitch completely free in acres and acres of space. The idea, I think, is that you try and shut down the space in that little box so well that they can't make that pass out to the fullback on the other side and you sort of take that risk. But we actually aren't good enough yet at stopping that. And so, so often what you'd, ha- what you'd find is Liverpool would have the ball, let's say over in sort of the right back-ish kind of area and there'd be an easy switch onto Robertson out on the left-hand side and then Liverpool are away. You know, then we've got five or six players committed to that Liverpool sort of right back area and now they're, they're playing in loads and loads of space. I mentioned before that normally the way that great pressing teams overcome that is they jump with the fullback on the other side, who for us would be Dallow, get him to leave his winger. Then the centre-backs come across to cover that winger and Dallow would go on and jump onto uh, Andy Robertson. It's, it's, this is exactly where Liverpool's first goal came from. We committed to the Liverpool sort of right-back area. I think it was Canate played a good switch out to Robertson. Dallow did push onto Robertson, but only after he received the ball. So he didn't make the first touch very difficult. He did engage with him. But then as a result of him doing that, Fred's then had to come across and play in right back. So you've got Dallow at centre mid, Fred as a right back. And then in fairness, it was it was good play from, from Liverpool. Gakpo, Gakpo's run from out to in, drew Fred wide, then the ball went inside of him. Varane is then sprinting to come across, can't get his body stopped in time. But it all comes from United's poor pressing in that right back area. And that was a constant theme throughout the game, throughout the entire first half. Liverpool had so much joy. And we didn't that. cause their fullbacks much of a problem. Partly because Bruno Fernandes was wide and Marcus Rashford was up front. Did you think that was a mistake? It's kind of, it's it's really weird talking about it now because <laughs> of what came afterwards. But it it, do, it did feel like maybe that was a, it worked okay in the first half, but he just thought United didn't really have that oomph. We had a couple of good moves, but without having that real. I'm going to say, I don't, I don't really like Bruno Fernandes playing out wide in games like this. I think he's better out wide when we're playing against teams that are going to sit back, probably have quite a deep block and where we're going to dominate possession because that is where you need him in those areas. And we need quality. That is simply all you need is to to break down a team in a deep block. We aren't brilliant at creating loads of space. You just need quality balls coming into the box to beat those, you know, seven or eight defenders from the other team that might be crowding the the space in in the penalty area. What I think we... The way that we approach these big games at the moment is we try, we don't necessarily sit back, we try and soak up the pressure and our main sort of attacking threat comes from transitional moments, right? It's how we've scored all of our goals really in all these big games throughout the season. That are set pieces. The problem with having Bruno Fernandes out wide is that when we do win the ball back, where's, where does it normally drop? It normally drops into the center of the pitch. And so that's when normally we're either able to part, play one pass into Bruno or he's the one picking it up in the first place. And then he's able to play, you know, these magical through balls into Rashford or Anthony or Garnacho or whoever else. When he's out wide, we're stifling that sort of super skill, that super strength that he has because A, he has a, maybe not more defensive duty, but he often has to track back further because the fullbacks get further forward than the defensive midfielders do that he would normally be tracking at number 10. But we're also meaning that in those transitional moments, he's just so, so much less of a, of a, of a force when we're, whenever we win the ball back. And when, when he's out yeah. wide, he doesn't have the pace himself to go and make those runs in behind and be the one on the end of those transitional balls, not least because there's no one else really in our team that can play them when he's out, out wide anyway. So I, I just think we're limiting 
Bruno Fernandes's main strength by putting him out wide in games that we are trying to play this more kind of transitional football. And it also limits Rashford because he now can't play in his best position off the left. Yeah, we better move on. But I have an answer to your guest to play a clue. But... Wow, already? To... Uh, and I'm I like, I know this is right. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm confident enough to say, give the next clue. So anyone who hasn't got it yet can have a stab at it. And then I'll tell you what I know the answer to be. Okay. So the final, the, oh, sorry. Okay. So the second clue is I won the FA Youth Cup in 2003, but I was never able to win the senior version Losing yeah. in the 2007 final, the first one at the New yeah. Wembley. You think you know who it is? Yeah. All right. That's confirmed it for me. Okay. And the player is? Kieran Richardson. Yeah, absolutely. Who was on loan at West Brom under Brian Robson. I realised I realized it couldn't be Robson at Middlesbrough. So then I pursued the Roy Keane line a bit more, which took me to Sunderland where I know he signed all sorts of Man United players on loan or permanently. I knew Kieran Richard plays for Sunderland and then also Aston Villa later on for uh, a much shorter amount of time. And then I just had to match the Robson one, which was... Yeah, and managed by, by Steve Bruce at, at Sunderland after Roy Keane as well. Yeah, and it, the Steve Bruce was, one was less helpful because he could be at every club yeah, he's, yeah, he's managed in everyone. English football. <laughs> Whereas the, the Keane one was a little bit more limited and yeah, more useful. We're going to go into our picture while, today. We're going to talk. This, I thought Sorry, that Richardson might have also played under Solskjaer for Cardiff because he yeah. went there after Cardiff, after Villa. Well, he played for England under Steve McLaren. Oh, I don't know, actually. Uh, all his England performances league. were 05 and 06, which I get, guess would have been under Ericsson still because he, yeah, McLaren took, took over after the 2006 World Cup. Well, I guess they could be if it was in, if he played yeah. in 2006, like in the, after the World Cup, that would have been under Steve McLaren. But I don't know if any of his England appearances were then. Yeah, maybe. Right, let's go into our Patreon Q&A. We've got some more interesting discussion about uh, United-Liverpool, if that interests you. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, coming out of the Patreon q I didn't think there was much more to say about the United-Liverpool game, but we found plenty in it. That was a really interesting discussion about how United move on and uh, also what that result can do for Ten Hag. One of our patrons, Tony Ryan, called it great ammunition to use to progress. So um, a nice conversation about that. And uh, rail bet- potential rail best is wait. Let's go into um, Academy Roundup then. 
uh, lone players and then United women. So we'll start with the, in fact, the under 21s didn't play. They play just after we record against Chelsea. Uh, it's against Chelsea. Yeah, it is. The under 18s though had a thrilling game at Leeds and Travis Binion, the lead coach, was left reflecting on similar mistakes and familiar mistakes. Having beaten Derby last week 5-2, Binion was disappointed at the end of the game that United allowed Derby to score late on and then to get a penalty as well. It just changed the flow of the game from a completely dominant win to... Uh, they kind of just they they took their foot off the gas at 5-1 and the final half an hour of the game was all Derby and he wasn't happy with that. It was similar. A 3-1 lead established over Leeds that was established with a first half strike from James Nolan which cancelled out an unfortunate early goal from Habib Ogonei. Uh and then United went in front with a clinical finish from Ethan Williams and a close range finish from Gabriel Bianchieri who's uh, a new player signed for the under 16s this was his debut scored in his debut brilliant all good so far Travis says uh, the game should be dead at 3-1 it absolutely should but Leeds got back into it Scoring uh, their second goal, Eli Harrison was under pressure and gave the ball away, the goalkeeper. it As Travis Binion said himself, it's a ridiculous goal and he has to learn from that. Uh, the goal breathed life back into Leeds. Harrison's a really talented goalkeeper and there's real high hopes for him. He's been really good at, with the ball at his feet this season. His shot stopping quality is obvious. He's saved a couple of penalties in the last few weeks, but these are very useful it, it, this is his second mistake in a few weeks and it's a really useful period where he really needs to push himself and make sure he doesn't make them again and then United conceded ahead of late on to draw 3-3 so a disappointing result but the under 18s group is doing really well at the moment they're so young the number of under 16s and under 15s in the squad is growing every week it's a ridiculously young team and they're getting proper fast tracked learning and it's going well. The under-21s, as I said, play Chelsea um, on Monday night. Uh, Amari Forson has been nominated for February's Premier League 2 Player of the Month after four goals and one assist in February. Jack, what's the main lone headlines? Well, the player that's generally been making the lone headlines, Ahmad Diallo, had a similarly awful weekend to the first team, to be honest. He played full 90 minutes but lost 5-1 no. <laughs> for Sunderland against Stoke. Uh, the Stoke manager Alex Neal is a former Sunderland manager so a bit of revenge for him there Hannibal also had a quiet afternoon for Birmingham he played just the final 20 minutes against Wigan but it was a much better day for Alvaro Fernandez. he played the full 90 minutes for Preston they drew with Watford Fernandez has had a little run in the team again we've been mentioning how he's sort of been competing with Robbie Brady for that left wing back spot Robbie Brady was sent off last week and has now served two games, I think, of that ban. So Fernandez has been getting some good opportunities and, and made the most of them, was getting a lot of praise in, in the media after the game, which actually got picked up by the United website as well. So really good sort of week for him. Uh, then we got Charlie Savage is probably the, the biggest story in terms of good play. He played all 90 minutes for Forest Green. Forest Green continued to struggle with their form, but Charlie Savage won the February Player of the Month for the club uh, that was just handed out recently. Also in the championship, on loan, on loan manager Michael Carrick with a, <laughs> another thumping win for Middlesbrough, 5-0 and Middlesbrough third, third in the league. And then the other loan news, Charlie McNeil actually played against Ethan Galbraith for Charlie McNeil playing for Newport, Ethan Galbraith playing for Salford City. Galbraith and Salford City ended up coming out winners. They beat Newport 3-1. Charlie McNeil has had some, some decent opportunities actually recently, um, but hasn't managed to, to get a goal yet for Newport. He's, he's struggled a little bit uh, down there. So hopefully he can get a little bit of uh, an improvement in the next few weeks. And then Shola Shuratire also played 65 minutes for Bolton as well. Lovely. United women, 
as I mentioned much earlier, um, entirely contrasting result to the men. 5-1 winners over Leicester City, who have become a much improved team under Willie Kirk recently, despite their status at the bottom of the table. United, of course, should have won this game, and they did. So that's that. Well, not quite. There's a bit more to say. Alessi Russo scoring a hat-trick for starters. Two in the first half, another just after Leicester got one back five minutes into the second half. Russo then assisted Leah Goldson strike after that before the pair came off for Rachel Williams and Lucia Garcia, who scored United's fifth goal. Good performance, very positive day, no doubt about that. I think I mentioned it last week, but just in case, and it's worth saying again anyway on Mary Earps, this was her first game after being named the best goalkeeper in the world at the best awards. And if you haven't watched her speech yet, it's brilliant. Uh, honest and inspiring at the end. Uh, it's on my Twitter feed if you want to see it and find it easily. It's all over Twitter as well. Um, but crucially, as I also mentioned in our last episode, United were playing this weekend. Chelsea and Arsenal were not. They met in the Conti Cup final at Wembley. Arsenal won that. But what that meant for United is this was an opportunity to stretch the lead at the top of the table and they have done exactly that. United now have 35 points from 14 games. City have 32 from 14. Chelsea in third have 31 points from 12 games, two fewer than United. And having played the same number as Chelsea, 12, Arsenal have five fewer points than them. And uh, how many fewer than United? Uh, Nine points fewer than United. So as things stand, the title favourites are Chelsea still. If they win their games in hand, they'll go ahead of United. But we have a, a brilliant opportunity here and it's going to be really exciting. And to make it even better, United and Chelsea play each other next week. On Sunday at 12.30, United away from home. It's going to be really hard. The game's on BBC Two. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I don't expect much. I think Chelsea will win. United never beaten Chelsea, but a draw would be great and it would really shift the scales. So it's exciting. Um Jack, Thursday night, Real Batiste. Uh, in our Patreon Q&A, we, we spoke about it a little bit, but Marek Gobowski asked, how do you move on from this, from such a dreadful performance? And the simple answer we gave was, well, you win on Thursday, and that's the absolute crucial thing. We also spoke about what changes Tenag might make and possibly even to the captaincy and that. So if you want to hear that, become a patron and you can get access to this one and every other bonus Q&A for all of the past and all of the future as well for as little as pound fifty a month. But in terms of Real Betis, they're going to sit back. United need to come out very strongly, but we know what these Spanish opposition can do and it's going to be, it's going to be a, a really difficult game. Yeah, United need to come out and, and start fast. You know, I think that is the order of the day, really. It, Old Trafford is going to be behind the team, definitely, but I think there will be an element of angst around the stadium. I think if United come out and it's really flat, especially if we go goal down early, I think you could see an atmosphere that isn't the best for the players yeah. to be in. So I think it's come out fast, start quickly. And as long as we do that, the fans will be completely on side. Shouldn't be too much trouble. It's still going to be a difficult game because Betis are a good side, but we don't need to make things more difficult for ourselves by starting slowly. Yeah, it's amazing. When when I was at the West Ham game, I think it would have been shown on TV as well, but there was just a procession of uh, of, of awards and ceremonies to, for Mary Earps, for Casemiro, for David De Gea, for, uh, and the League Cup was brought out by Bruno and, and Harry Maguire. And our next home game, it's going to be very different at the start of it, having come in off the back of a 7 0 defeat. It's, it's such a strange contrast and such a surprising thing to have. Um, but yeah, it's about restoring a, a bit of that faith. Yeah, look, I, th- I think we can look to the previous Liverpool game at home earlier in the season as a bit of a muddle yeah, here. Yeah, that's very you true. Know, we were coming off the back of two really bad defeats 
all right, playing against a much bigger rival, obviously, in Liverpool than Betis, but we came out, Dallow smashed into, I think it was Louis Diaz on the right-hand side within 20 seconds. Martinez and smashes through the back of Salah and sort of gives him a bit of a shoulder yeah. charge as he's walking away from the challenge. Yeah. Those things obviously don't win us that game, but it sets the tone and it gets the crowd fully on side for the entire game in a stadium that's probably going to be quite anxious. There, I think there will be an amount of defiance inside Old Trafford, as there should be within the players as well. But I think that is going to be a stadium that could not turn, but could just not be a very conducive atmosphere for our players to perform at their best. They have to set that standard and set the table right at yeah. the beginning of that game. Yeah, Betis are a really good team though. They were the best performing team in the group stages. In, in the Europa League group stages, they are playing well in La Liga. They've got, they, uh, we say they're going to sit back because that's, that is what I expect them to do. But they are quite an attacking side normally. And I'm sure they'll be looking to break very quickly. And if they can, pen United back, but otherwise just, just keep us out and take us home. And I think if, if they can get a draw, they'll be really confident of beating United at home. Incredibly. I don't, I think this is the, I don't think they've ever got further than this stage. I think they've got to this stage quite a few times, but they've never got further than this stage. So it's um, it's very interesting for them. There is a link. This is the first time we're playing Real Betis in a competitive match. We obviously played them and lost in um, the mid-season break, but this is our first competitive match against them, which uh, reunites two clubs of Patrick O'Connell, who was the first manager, what, the only manager to guide Real Betis to La Liga in the 1930s and played for Manchester United. I believe was United's first officially Irish player, not Northern Irish, but Republic of Ireland um, player back in 1908 or 1909. Um, Played a few times. Sorry, no, it wasn't. It was in 1914. It was just before the war. He captained United for a season, played at centre-half and then went on to manage Real Betis and Barcelona and Sevilla and several other clubs as well. Um, yeah, really, he's a fascinating character. If you want to read more about him, look his look his name up, Patrick O'Connell, who was known as Don Patricio in Spain, obviously. Um, so that's a nice little note to end on. Um, United was shit in 1914, and uh, it's not as bad as that now. <laughs> um, prediction for the game. I think it's going to be tight and quite scrappy as it normally is against Spanish teams in the knockouts. I'll I'll go for a 1-1 draw. I I, th- I think it'll be a draw either 0-0 or 1-1, mm. but I'll go for 1-1. It's hard it's it's obviously really hard to be optimistic right now. Um yeah. I'm going to go for 2-1 United win. Wow, all right. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah. Let's keep a smile on our faces to end. Right. Thank you very much for listening. I c- honestly can't believe if you are listening to this and you've got to the end but I hope you can move on now have listened to this and enjoy whatever day of the week it is um, yeah and United will be back on Thursday in a hopefully very different fashion I'm I'm sure there will be a good response on Thursday whether we win the game or not I don't know but I'm sure there'll be a good response I have every faith in these players and especially in our magnificent bald man Eric Ten Hag. So, thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll speak to you very soon. Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.